0: Having found the red wig hidden in the bushes, Frank and Joe are sure the identity of the car thief will soon be discovered. They have a hunch that perhaps that criminal is the same one who perpetrated the Tower Mansion robbery. And if it is, then Slim Robinson will be able to come back to school instead of leaving to help support his family by working as a grocery delivery man. But even with Mr. Hardy's help... It is harder to find the thief than the boys had anticipated. Here is the next exciting episode of The Hardy Boys in The Tower Treasure. Now sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. The Hardy Boys in The Tower Treasure Chapter 11 Mr. Hardy Investigates The Hardy Boys looked at one another in growing excitement. "'What ought we to do about it?' asked Joe. "'I'm going to tell Dad what we've found.' "'But didn't he say he would be working the case on his own, "'and that we would be opposition?' "'Ah, this is different. "'We have a real clue here, but we don't know how to use it. "'You can bet Dad will know what to do. "'He'll act fairly with us. "'If it leads to anything, "'he'll see that we get credit for what we've done.' "'I guess you're right, Frank.' "'This is a little too big for us to handle ourselves. "'But imagine finding that wig! What luck! "'There's nothing else around, is there? Let's look!' "'Although the Hardy Boys scoured the woods in that vicinity thoroughly, "'they found nothing more. "'But the wig, the hat, and the coat "'gave promise of interesting developments. "'Frank hunted through all the pockets of the coat, in the faint hope of finding something that would identify the previous wearer. But in this, he was disappointed. So they went back to the abandoned road, and remounted their motorcycles, returning to Bayport with the articles they had found in the woods. Their disappointment had turned to jubilation, for now they felt that they were definitely on the trail of the mysterious man in the red wig. And while ostensibly there was no connection between this fellow and the thief who had robbed Tower Mansion, Frank had, as he said, a hunch that the auto-thief and the robber of the mansion were one and the same man. If we ever lay our hands on the man who stole Chet's roadster, I'm sure we'll have gone a long way toward solving the Tower affair, said Frank to his brother. I may be wrong, but I have an idea that the fellow was a professional crook who first set out to rob the steamboat office. Then, when he was frightened off, he hung around the city and waited his chance to rob Tower Mansion. Mr. Hardy was still in the library when the boys returned home. The great detective was frankly surprised when his sons again entered the room, and he looked up with the suspicion of a twinkle in his eyes. "'What? More clues?' he exclaimed. "'Surely not so soon!' "'You bet we have more clues!' exclaimed Frank eagerly. "'And real clues this time. "'We're going to turn them over to you.' "'But I thought the two of you were working on this case in your own way. "'Remember, I'm the opposition.' "'Well, to tell the truth, "'we don't know just what to do with what we've found,' admitted Frank. "'And anyway, we know you'll be fair with us, so it doesn't matter. "'Look!' "'And with that he tossed the red wig on the table.' He kept the coat and the hat behind his back. Fenton Hardy leaned forward quickly and picked up the wig with an inquiring glance at his son's. "'So,' he murmured, "'you found the wig.' He examined it intently. Then he opened a drawer of his desk and produced the filament of wig that the boys had found in the smashed car by the road. This he applied to a torn part of the wig itself, It fitted perfectly. It's the wig, all right, he declared, looking up. Where did you find it? By the smashed car? No, hidden in the bushes near the place where Chet's Roadster was found. Mr. Hardy whistled solemnly. Well, good work. He turned the wig over and over in his hands, carefully examined it under a microscope, and then tossed it back on the desk. "'There aren't so many wigs sold that one can't trace them,' he observed. "'This happens to be made by a small company "'that doesn't turn out a great many wigs in a year. "'It's sort of a sideline with them. "'How can you tell? "'There's a little mark on the inside "'that distinguishes the manufacturer. "'Just a trademark, hardly noticeable. "'And we found these as well,' said Frank, "'handing over the coat and hat.' "'Mr. Hardy's eyes opened wide. "'Well, well!' he exclaimed. "'You have been busy, haven't you?' "'They were all hidden in the same place. "'And well hidden, too, I'll warrant. "'We were sure there must be clues of some kind around that car, "'so we searched every inch of the woods round about. "'Good,' said Mr. Hardy approvingly. "'You didn't miss any chances.' "'I'm not saying these clues will lead to the capture of the fellow, "'but they will go a long way toward finding him. "'What should we do with them?' "'Mr. Hardy looked up at his sons and smiled. "'Well, you've shared your clues with me, "'so I suppose I may as well share some of my experience with you. "'What do you say if I go to the city "'and try to trace up some of these labels? "'This hat, for instance?' "'And he picked it up from the table.' "'examining the band intently. "'There's a label here. "'Of course, the hat may have been sold a long time ago. "'And it isn't likely that the man who sold it "'would remember who bought it. "'But there's always the chance "'that the store may not be very far "'from where the fellow lives. "'You get my idea? "'And the coat, too. "'If we can find any trace of who bought the wig, "'we may be able to connect up the other things as well. "'Gosh, I never thought of that.' admitted Frank. It's a slim chance, but as I said before, we can't afford to overlook any chances. I'll take them to the city and see what I can do. It may mean everything, and it may mean nothing. Don't be disappointed if I come back empty-handed, and don't be surprised if I come back with some valuable information. Mr. Hardy tossed the wig, the coat, and the hat into a club bag that was standing open near his desk. The great detective was accustomed to being called away suddenly on strange errands, and he was always prepared to leave at a moment's notice. "'Not much use starting now,' he said, glancing at his watch. "'But I'll go to the city the first thing in the morning. In the meantime, don't rest on your oars, as the saying is. Keep your eyes and your ears open for more clues. The case isn't over yet by any means.'" Mr. Hardy picked up some papers on his desk, as a hint that the interview was over, and the boys left the library. They were in a state of high excitement, for they were confident now that they had made valuable progress in the case, and that they were sure that if the wig and the garments could be of any use at all toward locating the crook, Mr. Hardy would be the man to use them. When they went to bed that night they could hardly sleep, So elated were they over their discovery near the abandoned roadway. He must have been a pretty smart crook, murmured Joe, after they had talked long into the night. The idea about that wig was clever. I bet he was an experienced guy. The smarter they are, the harder they fall, replied Frank. It's the experienced crook that the police always look for. If this fellow has any kind of a record at all, it won't take long for Dad to run him down." I've heard Dad say that there's no such thing as a clever crook. If he was really clever, he wouldn't be a crook at all. Yes, I guess there's something in that, too. But it shows that we're not up against any ordinary amateur. This fellow must be a slippery customer. He'll have to be mighty slippery from now on. Once Dad has a few clues to work on, he never lets up till he gets his man. Well... Let's hope he gets this one. He'll think a lot more of us as detectives if he does. And with that, the boys fell asleep. When they went down to breakfast the following morning, they found that Fenton Hardy had left for New York on an early morning train. The Hardy boys went to school, but all through that morning they could scarcely keep their minds on their work. Their thoughts were far afield. They were wondering how Fenton Hardy was faring on his quest to New York, and it was not until after Frank had drawn a reprimand from one of his teachers because he absent mindedly answered, Red Wig, when asked to name the capital of Kansas, that they settled down to work and tried to put the affair of the wig and the abandoned clothes from their minds. Slim Robinson was at school that day, But after four o'clock, he confided to the hardy boys that he was leaving. It's no use, he said. Father can't keep me in school any longer, and it's up to me to pitch in and help the family. I'm to start work tomorrow for a grocery company. "And, And you wanted to go to college, exclaimed Frank. It's a shame that's what it is. Can't be helped, replied Perry with a grimace. I can consider myself lucky I got this far. I guess I'll have to give up all those ideas now and settle down to learn the grocery business. There's one good thing about it. I'll have the chance to learn it from the ground up. I'm starting in the delivery department. Perhaps, in about 50 years, I'll be the head of the firm. You'll make good at whatever you tackle, Joe assured him, but I'm sorry you won't be able to go through college as you wished. Don't give up hope yet, Slim. You never know what may happen. Perhaps they'll find the fellow who did rob Tower Mansion. Both boys wanted to tell their chum about the clues they had discovered the previous day, but the same thought was in their minds, that it would be unwise to raise false hopes. It would go much harder with Perry, they knew, if he began to think the capture of the thief was imminent, only to have the hope dashed to earth again so they said goodbye to him and wished him good luck. Perry tried hard to be cheerful, but his smile was very faint as he turned away from them and walked off down the street. "'Gosh, but I'm sorry for him,' said Frank as they went home. "'He was such a hard worker in school, and he counted so much on going to college.' "'We've just got to clear up the tower robbery. That's all there is to it,' declared his brother. "'Perhaps Dad is back by now.' There's a train from New York at three o'clock. Let's hurry home and see. But when the Hardy Boys arrived home, they found that their father had not yet returned from the city. We'll just have to be patient, I guess, said Frank. No news is good news. And with this philosophic reflection, the Hardy Boys were obliged to comfort themselves against the impatience that possessed them to learn what progress their father was making in the city toward following up the clues they had given him. Chapter 12 Days of Waiting Fenton Hardy had high hopes of a quick solution of the mystery when he went to New York. Possession of the wig, the hat, and the coat gave him three clues, any one of which might lead to tracing the previous owner quickly, and the detective was confident that it would not be long before he would unravel the tangled threads. He had not stated his optimism to the boys, being careful not to arouse their hopes. But in his heart, he thought it would be but a matter of hours before he ran the owner of the red wig to earth. But obstacles presented themselves before him in bewildering succession. The wig appeared to be his chief clue, and when he arrived in the city, he went directly to the head office of the company that had manufactured it. When he sent his card into the manager, He was readily admitted, for Fenton Hardy's name was known from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Some of our customers in trouble, Mr. Hardy, asked the manager, when the great detective tossed the red wig on his desk. Not yet, but one of your customers will be in trouble if I can ever trace the purchaser of this wig. The manager picked it up. He inspected it carefully and frowned. We are not, as you know, a wig-making firm, he said. That is, the wig department is a very small sideline with us. The very reason I thought it would be easier to trace this, replied Mr. Hardy. If you turned out thousands of them every year, it might be more difficult. You sell to an exclusive theatrical trade, I believe. Exactly. If an actor wants a wig of some special nature, we do our best to please him. We only make the wigs to order. Then you'll probably have a record of this one. The manager turned the wig over in his hands, glanced carefully at the inside, felt of the weight and texture, then pressed a button at the side of his desk. A boy came and departed with a message. It may be difficult. This wig is not new. In fact, I would say it was turned out about two years ago. A long time, but still, I'll do the best I can. A bespectacled old man shuffled into the office at that moment in response to the manager's summons and stood waiting in front of the desk. "'Kaufman here,' said the manager, "'is our expert. What he doesn't know about wigs isn't worth knowing.' Then, turning to the old man, he handed him the red wig. "'Remember it, Kaufman?' The old man looked at it doubtfully. Then he gazed at the ceiling. "'Red wig!' "'Red wig,' he muttered. "'About two years old, isn't it?' prompted the manager. "'Not quite. Year and a half, I'd say. Looks like a comedy character type. Wait till I think there hadn't been so many of our customers playing that kind of a part inside a year and a half. Let me see, let me see.' The old man paced up and down the office, muttering names under his breath. Suddenly he stopped, "'snapping his fingers. "'I have it,' he said. "'It must have been Morley who bought that wig. "'That's who it was. "'Harold Morley. "'He's playing in Shakespearean repertoire "'with Hamlin's company. "'Very fussy about his wigs. "'Has to have just so. "'I remember he bought this one "'because he came in about a month ago "'and ordered another just like it.' "'Why would he do that?' asked Mr. Hardy. Kaufman shrugged his shoulders.' "'Ain't none of my business. "'Lots of actors keep a double set of wigs. "'Morley's playing down at the Crescent Theatre right now. "'Call him up.' "'I'll go and see him,' said Mr. Hardy, rising. "'You're sure he's the man who ordered that wig?' "'Positive,' replied Kaufman, looking hurt. "'I know every wig that goes out of my shop. "'I give him all my personal attention. "'Morley got the wig, and he got another just like it a month ago.' I remember. Kaufman is right, put in the manager. Morley has a very good account with us. If Kaufman says he remembers the wig, it must be so. Well, thank you for your trouble, answered Fenton Hardy. I may be able to see Mr. Morley in his dressing room if I hurry. It lacks about half an hour of theatre time. You'll just about make it. Glad to have been of service, Mr. Hardy. Any time we can do anything for you, just ask.' thank you and fenton hardy shook hands with kaufman and the manager then left the office bound for the crescent theater but the detective's hopes were not as high as they had been he knew that morley the actor was certainly not the man who had worn the wig on the day the roadster was stolen for the shakespearean company of which morley was a member had been playing a three months run in new york It would be impossible for the actor to get away from the theatre long enough for such an escapade, just as it was improbable that he would even try to do so. He presented his card to a suspicious doorman at the Crescent, and was finally admitted backstage, and shown down a brilliantly lighted corridor to the dressing room of Harold Morley. It was a snug little place, the dressing room, for Morley had fitted it up to suit his own tastes once it was assured that the company would remain at the Crescent for an extended run. There were pictures on the walls, a potted plant in the window overlooking the alleyway, and a rug on the floor. Seated before a mirror with electric lights at either side was a stout little man, almost totally bald. He was diligently rubbing cold cream on his face, and when Fenton Hardy entered, he did not turn around but eyeing his visitor in the mirror, casually told him to sit down. Often heard of you, Mr. Hardy, he said, in a surprisingly deep voice that had a comical effect in contrast to his diminutive appearance. Often heard of you. Glad to meet you. What kind of call is this? Social or professional? It's professional. Morley continued rubbing cold cream on his jowls. Spill it he said briefly. "'What is it all about?' "'Ever see this wig before?' asked Mr. Hardy, tossing the red wig on the table. Morley turned from the mirror, and an expression of delight crossed his plump countenance. "'Well, I'll say I've seen it before,' he declared. "'Old Kaufman, the best wig-maker in the country. Made that for me about a year and a half ago. That's the kind of wig I wear for Lancelot Gobo in The Merchant of Venice.' Where did you get it? I sure didn't think I'd ever see that wig again. Why? Stolen from me. Some low-down egg cleaned out my dressing room one night. During the performance, nerviest thing I ever heard of, came right in here when I was doing my stuff out front. Grabbed my watch and money and a diamond ring I had lying by the mirror. "'Took this wig and a couple of others that were lying around and beat it. "'Nobody saw him come or go. "'Must have got in by that window.' "'Morley talked in short, rapid sentences, "'and there was no mistaking his sincerity. "'How many wigs did he take?' "'About half a dozen. "'Funny thing about that, too. "'They were all red. "'Took nothing but red wigs. "'I told the cops to be on the lookout for a red-headed thief.' I didn't worry so much about the other wigs, for they were for old plays. But this one was being used right along. Kaufman made it specially for me. I had to get him to make another. But say, where did you find it? Oh, just a little case I'm investigating. The crook left this behind him. I was trying to trace it. Well, you've traced it all right. But that's all the help I can give you. The cops never did find out who cleaned out my dressing room. Mr. Hardy was disappointed. The clue of the red wig had only led to a blind alley. But he concealed his chagrin and tossed the wig over to Morley. Gee, and I'm sure glad to get it back again, declared the actor. Things haven't gone right with me at all since I lost that wig. Losing it brought me a whole flock of bad luck. "'Sorry I can't help you find the guy who took it. "'What's he been up to now?' "'Fenton Hardy evaded the question. "'Oh, I'll probably get him some other way. "'Give me a list and description of the stuff he took from you. "'Perhaps I can trace him through that.' "'Hop to it,' said Morley breezily. "'Hop right to it, old man. "'Here's the list of the stuff right here.' "'He reached in a drawer and drew out a sheet of paper "'which he handed over to the detective.' That's the same list I gave the cops when I reported the robbery. Number of the watch and everything. Mr. Hardy folded the list and put it in his pocket. Morley glanced at his watch, lying beside the mirror, face up, and gave an exclamation. suffering Sebastopol! Curtain in five minutes and I'm not half made up yet. Excuse me, Mr. Hardy, but I've got to get busy. In this business I'll be ready in a minute, doesn't go. He seized a stick of grease paint, and feverishly resumed the task of altering his appearance to that of the character he was portraying at the matinee that day. mr Hardy, smiling at the actor's casual informality, withdrew from the dressing room, and made his way out to the street. "A blind alley!" he muttered. "I was sure I could trace the fellow by means of the wig. Oh, well!" He shrugged his shoulders. "I still have the hat and coat. And if the worst comes to the worst, I can try to trace the chap through the stuff he stole from Morley, for it was probably the same man, but it looks like a big job. It was a big job. Efforts to trace the purchaser of the hat and coat were fruitless. The search ended at a second-hand store, where the owner vainly tried to sell Mr. Hardy a complete outfit of clothing at a bargain, but could not or would not remember who had bought the coat from him. He sold so many coats and at such bargains that he could not remember the customers who came into his store. Mr. Hardy was forced to retire, defeated. The predominating quality of the detective's character was patience. When he found that he could not trace the thief through the wig, the hat, or the coat, he doggedly set to work trying to trace the man who had broken into the dressing room of the actor Morley. And this, in spite of the fact, that the police had already given up that case as hopeless. Then, in his spare time, Mr. Hardy spent hours at police headquarters, poring over records, searching for particulars of hundreds of red-headed criminals. It was over a week before he found what he wanted, and it came from a chance note at the bottom of a police description of a thief who was at that time out on parole. But when Fenton Hardy saw the note, he knew he had stumbled onto the clue he needed, and he smiled grimly. It won't be long now, he remarked, in the popular phrase of the day, as he went back to his hotel. Chapter 13 In Poor Quarters In the meantime, the Hardy boys were finding the suspense almost unbearable. They had expected that their father would be away but a day at the most, but when two days dragged by, then three, and finally an entire week, without word from Mr. Hardy further than a brief note from New York, stating that he was well, and that the case was not as easy of solution as he had hoped, they became depressed. "'If Dad can't get the thief, no one can,' declared Joe with conviction." and I am beginning to think that even Dad is falling down in this affair. Better wait till he admits it to himself, suggested Frank, although I don't mind telling you I'm not very hopeful myself. Frank's preoccupied air had not gone unobserved. Callie Shaw had noticed his abstraction more than once when she had smiled pleasantly at him as they met one another in the hallways or in the classroom at the high school. He had merely nodded moodily, Callie was too sensible to be hurt by this, but she wondered what was worrying Frank. So one afternoon, when they happened to leave school together, she taxed him with it. "'What's on your mind, Frank?' she asked gaily. "'You've been going around looking like a human thundercloud for the last week.' "'Who, me?' "'I didn't notice,' returned Frank heavily. "'Yes, you,' she replied, mimicking his lifeless tone." "'You used to be full of fun. What's the matter? Can I help?' She glanced up at him eagerly. Frank shook his head. "'No, you can't help, Callie. It's about Slim.' "'Slim Robinson?' "'Oh, yes. Wasn't that too bad?' said Callie with quick sympathy. "'He had to leave school. They tell me he's working.' "'In a grocery store.' "'And he was so anxious to be a lawyer.' "'I was talking to him this morning. "'He pretends he likes the work he's at, "'but I could tell he wishes he could get back to school again. "'I'm real sorry for him. "'And all on account of that confounded tower robbery. "'But nobody really believes Mr. Robinson did it. "'Of course not. "'Nobody but Hurd Applegate. "'But until they find out who did take the stuff, "'Mr. Robinson is out of a job.' and nobody will hire him. Isn't that too bad? I'm going over to see Paulette and Tessie and Mrs. Robinson tonight. Where are they living? Frank gave Callie the address. Her eyes widened. Why, that's in one of the poorest sections of the city. Frank, I had no idea it was that bad. It is, and it'll be a lot worse unless Mr. Robinson gets work pretty soon. "'Slim's earnings aren't nearly enough to keep the family yet. "'Isn't there any chance that Mr. Robinson will be cleared?' "'That's what's worrying me. Dad is working on the case.' "'Then why should you worry?' said Kelly triumphantly. "'Why, that means it'll be all cleared up. Your father can do anything.' "'I used to think so, but he seems to be stuck this time. What's the matter?' He went up to New York almost a week ago with some clues that Joe and I were certain would clear up the affair, and so far we haven't heard from him, only to know that the case was harder than he expected. But he hasn't given up, has he? Well, no. Then what are you worrying about, silly? If your father had given up the case, there would be something to worry about. If he's still working on it, there's always hope. They walked on in silence for a while. "'Let's go out to see the Robinsons,' Callie said suddenly. "'I've been intending to go, but I sort of will. You know... You thought it might embarrass them. Well, it won't. I know Paula and Tessie well, and they're not that kind. They'd appreciate a friendly visit.' Frank hesitated. He had the natural shyness of his age and he felt awkward about visiting the Robinsons in their new home, for he knew they were now in reduced circumstances and might not wish their former friends to see them in their present plight. But Callie's words reassured him. "'All right, I'll go. We can't stay long, though.' "'We can't. I must be back in time for supper. We'll just drop in on them so they'll know we haven't forgotten all about them.' "'I thought you were going over to see them tonight.' "'I was.' "'but I've changed my mind. "'I want you to come with me now.' "'Frank hailed a passing streetcar, "'bound for the section of the city "'in which the Robinsons lived, "'and they got on board. "'It was a long ride, "'and the streets became poorer and meaner "'as they neared the outskirts of Bayport. "'It's an outrage, that's what it is,' "'declared Callie abruptly. "'Mrs. Robinson and the girls "'were always accustomed to having everything so nice.' and now they have to live away out here. Oh, I hope your father catches the man that committed that robbery. Her eyes flashed out, and for a moment she looked so fierce that Frank laughed. I suppose you'd like to be the judge and jury at his trial, eh? he chuckled. I'd give him a hundred years in jail. When at length they came to the street to which the Robinsons had moved, they found that it was an even poorer thoroughfare than they had expected. There were squalid shacks and tumble-down houses on either side of the narrow street, and ragged children were playing in the roadway. At the far end of the street, they came to a small, unpainted cottage that somehow contrived to look neat in spite of the surroundings. The picket fence had been repaired, and the yard had been cleaned up. "'This is where they live,' said Frank. "'It's the neatest place on the whole street.' Paula answered their knock. Her face lighted up with pleasure when she saw who the callers were. "'Frank and Callie!' exclaimed the girl. "'You've come to see us. "'Come in. We're dying of loneliness. "'There hasn't been a soul out this way since we moved.' Callie flashed Frank a look of triumph and whispered, "'There now! Didn't I tell you they'd be glad?' As they went into the house, they were greeted with kindly dignity by Mrs. Robinson, and with girlish good humor by Tessie. Mrs. Robinson received them with the same self-possession she would have shown them had they been back at the tower mansion and Frank wondered at himself for thinking that these good people might be ashamed to meet their old friends in this new and humbler home. We can't stay long, explained Kelly. "'But Frank and I just thought we'd run out to see how you all are.' "'We're all well. That's one mercy to be thankful for,' answered Mrs. Robinson. "'Perry is working. I suppose you knew that.' "'And Mr. Robinson?' inquired Frank. She shook her head. "'Not yet,' Mrs. Robinson's lips quivered. "'It's so hard for him,' she said. "'Without a recommendation, you know. "'It looks as though he might have to go to another city to get work.' "'And leave you here?' "'I suppose so. "'We don't know what to do.' "'It's so unjust,' flared Paula. "'Papa didn't have a thing to do with that miserable robbery, "'and yet he has to suffer for it just the same.' "'Has your father discovered anything yet, Frank?' "'asked Mrs. Robinson hesitantly. "'I'm sorry,' admitted Frank. "'We haven't heard from him. "'He's been away in New York, following up some clues.' but so far there's been nothing. Of course, it isn't often he falls down on a case. We hardly dare hope that he'll be able to clear Mr. Robinson. The whole case is so mysterious. I've given up thinking of it, Tessie declared. If it is cleared up, all well and good. If it isn't, we won't starve at any rate, and Papa knows we all believe in him. "'Yes, I suppose it doesn't do much good to keep talking about it,' agreed Mrs. Robinson. "'We've gone over it so thoroughly that there's nothing more to say.' So, by tacit consent, the subject was changed, and for the rest of their stay, Frank and Callie chatted of doings at school. Mrs. Robinson and the girls invited them to remain for supper, but Callie insisted that she must go. When they left... They promised faithfully to pay another visit in the near future. Only once again was the subject that was nearest to their hearts brought up, and that was when Mrs. Robinson drew Frank to one side as he was leaving. "'Promise me one thing,' she said. "'Let me know as soon as your father returns, if he has any news.' "'I'll do that for you, Mrs. Robinson,' agreed the boy. "'I know what this suspense must be like for you. "'It's terrible.' but as long as Fenton Hardy is working on the case, I am sure that it will be cleared up if it is humanly possible. And with that, the matter rested. Callie was unusually silent all the way home. It was evident that she had been profoundly affected by the change that the Tower Mansion mystery had caused in the lives of the Robinsons. Naturally sympathetic and tender-hearted, she felt keenly the injustice of it all, and she realized even more than Frank what it had meant to Mrs. Robinson and the girls to move from their comfortable home in the mansion to the squalid and distant part of the city in which they now lived. Callie lived but a few blocks away from the hardy home, and Frank accompanied her to the gate. "'Oh, mercy!' she exclaimed, glancing at her watch. "'It's after six. I'm away late for supper. So am I. I'll see you tomorrow.' "'Surely. But—but Frank?' "'Yes?' Callie hesitated, then looked directly into his eyes. "'Frank,' she said, "'if your father somehow doesn't clear up this affair, "'you and Joe simply must do it. "'You must. "'For the Robinsons. "'It means so much to them. "'Dad won't fall down on it, don't worry. "'And Joe and I are giving all the help we can.' His confidence was contagious. Kelly brightened up immediately. In that case, she said gaily, the mystery is as good as solved. The three best detectives in the world are working on it. Goodbye, Frank. With that, she ran lightly into the house. Chapter 14. Red Jackley. It was another week before and Hardy returned to Bayport, Contrary to the expectations of the boys, he did not arrive from New York. Instead he came home early one morning, having reached the city by a train from the west. He had sent no advance notice of his arrival, and the first his sons knew of it was when a servant told them that their father had reached the house in the early hours of the morning, plainly careworn and travel-stained. He had gone immediately to bed— "'leaving orders that he was on no account to be disturbed. "'This was at breakfast, "'and although the boys were wild with impatience "'to learn the outcome of their father's trip, "'they were obliged to curb their curiosity. "'Mr. Hardy was still sleeping "'when they left for school that morning, "'and to their surprise, "'he was asleep when they came back home for lunch. "'He must be mighty tired,' remarked Joe. "'I wonder where on earth he came from.' Probably been up all night. When Dad gets hard at work on a case, he forgets all about sleep. I'll bet he found something. Oh, I hope so, but I wish he'd wake up and tell us. I hate to go back to school without knowing. But Mr. Hardy had not awakened by the time the boys set out for school again, although they lingered until they were in danger of being late. All afternoon they were tormented by curiosity where had their father been? What had he discovered? As soon as school was out, they fled down the steps, broke away from the group of boys anxious to get up a baseball game, and shattered all records in their race for home. Fenton Hardy was in the library, and as they rushed panting into the room, he grinned broadly at his sons, for he was quite well aware that they were impatient to hear an account of his trip. He looked refreshed after his long sleep and it was evident that his trip had not been entirely without success, for his manner was cheerful. The Hardy boys knew their father well, and they knew that when a case was difficult of solution, the great detective became moody and worried. "'What luck, Dad?' asked Frank, perching on the arm of an easy chair. Mr. Hardy raised his eyebrows, pretending not to understand. "'About what?' he inquired. About the case, the Tower Mansion case, the red wig. Did you find out who owned it? Did you catch the thief? Whoa, 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 whoa. Not all at once. One question at a time, please. Now do I understand that you want to know if I found out anything about the Tower Mansion affair? Oh, don't keep us waiting, Dad, pleaded Joe. You know that's what we're asking you about. Well, answered Mr. Hardy, yes, and... And no. That's not much of an answer, objected Frank in disappointment. It's the best answer I can give, unfortunately. I did find out something about the red wig. But as for connecting its wearer with the tower robbery, that is still to come. You traced the fellow who wore the wig? I did. And he turned out to be a well-known criminal. Well-known to the police, that is. "'What's his name?' asked Joe. Jackly. John Jackley. "'Commonly known as Red.' "'Because he has red hair?' "'No, because he hasn't red hair. "'That reverses the usual order of nicknames, I imagine. "'But this fellow Jackley has a fondness for wearing red wigs.' "'And was he the man who stole Chet's Roadster?' "'It seems almost certain. "'I traced the wig.' Which had been originally stolen from an actor in New York. I traced it to Jackley, because his habit of wearing red wigs is well known to the police, and by locating him and keeping a close watch on him, and paying a call at his rooms one night, when he was out, I managed to find some of the loot that he had taken when he robbed the actor. That seemed to connect everything up pretty well. Where did you find him? asked Frank in New York. He wasn't in hiding, for he hadn't been sought for any particular crime at the time. The police seemed to overlook him in their investigation of the dressing room theft. Did you accuse him? No, I wanted to learn more. When I found the articles that had been stolen from the actor, and knew that the wig found by the roadster had been taken at the same time, I knew Red Jackley was the auto-thief. "'but I wanted to get some information "'on the Tower Mansion affair if possible. "'So I took a room in the house in which Jackley was living "'and kept a close watch on him. "'Did you learn anything?' "'Mr. Hardy shook his head. "'Jackley himself spoiled everything. "'He got mixed up in a jewel robbery "'and cleared out of the city. "'Luckily I heard him packing up and I trailed him. "'The police were watching for him "'and he couldn't get out by railway.' That is, not in the ordinary manner. Instead, he tried to make his escape by jumping a freight. And you still followed? I lost him two or three times, but luck was with me, and somehow I managed to pick up his trail again. He got out of the city, out into New Jersey, and then his luck failed him. A railway detective recognized him, and then the chase was on. Up to that time, I had been content with just keeping behind him. I had hoped to pose as a fellow fugitive and win his confidence. But when the chase started in real earnest, I had to join with the other officers. And they caught Jackley? Not without a chase. Jackley, by the way, was once a railroad man. Strangely enough, he once worked not many miles from here. He managed to steal a railway gasoline speeder, got away from us. But he didn't last for long, for the speeder jumped the tracks on a curve, and Jackley was badly smashed up. Was he killed? I don't think he'll live. He's in a hospital right now, and the doctors say he hasn't much of a chance. But he's under arrest? Oh, yes. He's being held for the jewel robbery, and also for the robbery from the actor's dressing room but I don't think he'll live to answer either charge. Didn't you find out anything that would connect him with the tower robbery? Not a thing. The Hardy Boys were disappointed, and their expressions showed it. If Red Jackley died, the secret of the tower robbery would die with him, for by now Frank and Joe were convinced that the notorious criminal had indeed been the thief for whose misdeeds Mr. Robinson was now suffering, and if the secret died with him, Mr. Robinson would be doomed to spend the rest of his life under a cloud, suspected of being a thief. "'Have you seen Jackly yet?' asked Frank. "'After the smash-up, but I didn't have a chance to talk to him. "'You might have been able to get a confession from him.' Fenton Hardy nodded. "'I may be able to get one yet. "'If he is sure he's going to die—' "'He may admit everything. "'I intend to make an effort to see him in the hospital "'and ask him about the tower robbery anyway. "'Is he far away?' "'Mr. Hardy named a small city not far distant from Bayport. "'I explained my mission to the doctor in charge, "'and he promised to telephone me as soon as it was possible for Jackley to see anyone. "'I'm convinced that the fellow had something to do with the tower affair.' It's a certainty that he stole the automobile. The Whig proves that. By the same token, it's certain that he was the man who tried to hold up the ticket office. Having failed in that attempt, it seems more than likely that an old-time criminal like Jackley would look around for something else to do before he left Bayport. You say he used to work near here? asked Joe. He was once employed by the railroad, and he knows all the country well around here. Then he got mixed up in some thefts from freight cars, and after he got out of jail, he became a professional criminal. It was when I was looking over the records that I found out about his fondness for wearing a red wig. That was what eventually proved his undoing. If he had not robbed the actor's dressing room to get the wig that he used when he was in Bayport, I would never have traced him. At that moment, it was announced the chief colleague of the Bayport police force wished to see Fenton Hardy. The detective winked at the boys and told the servant to show the chief in. Chief colleague entered the room, mopping his brow with a handkerchief, for it was a hot day and he was a stout man. Behind him came detective Smuff, fanning himself with a straw hat. "Good afternoon, gentlemen," said Mr. Hardy genially. "Won't you sit down?" Chief Collig eased himself into an armchair. Detective Smuff leaned against the table. Both glanced inquiringly at the two boys. "'Unless your business is very private, "'I'd just as soon have the boys stay,' suggested Mr. Hardy pleasantly. "'He did not trust Chief Collig and Detective Smuff, "'who came to him only in emergencies "'and who usually took all the credit for themselves.' whenever he helped them out of their difficulties. He preferred to have the boys present as witnesses. "'How about it, Chief?' asked Smuff heavily. "'Can they stay?' "'I guess so,' grunted Chief Collig, undoing the collar of his uniform. "'Can't do no good, and they can't do no harm.' "'Well, gentlemen, to what do I owe the honour of this visit?' asked Mr. Hardy. We've been hearing things about this tower mansion case, observed Chief Collig gravely. You've been working on it, eh? Perhaps. You've been out of town for quite a few days. You must have been working on it. That's what we deduce, anyway, put in Detective Smuff. Perhaps it's my own business. Police business is everybody's business, declared Collig judicially. What we want to know is. Did you find any clues? Detective Smuff fished out the inevitable pencil and paper. I'll note 'em down, Chief, he remarked. You may as well put back the notebook, Smuff, snapped Fenton Hardy with annoyance. If I went away it's my own business. And if I'm still working on the tower robbery, that's my business too. I'll thank you to keep to your own affairs. Chief Colleg opened his mouth, then closed it again. He took out his handkerchief and mopped his brow, all the while staring at Fenton Hardy. Then he turned and gazed at Smuff. Detective Smuff, he said in a solemn voice, did you hear that? I did. What do you think of it, Detective Smuff? I think, I think... Detective Smuff groped for an expression that would encompass the magnitude of the offense. I think Mr. Hardy is guilty of obstructing the cause of justice, he said grandly. Obstructing fiddlesticks, said Mr. Hardy, I'm minding my own business, which is more than some police officers seem capable of doing. Chief Collegg sighed. The trouble with you, Mr. Hardy, he said is that you won't cooperate. If you cooperated a little more, we'd all be farther ahead. There ain't any cooperation at all. Here's me and Smuff doing our best to drive crime out of Bayport, and you won't cooperate. Perhaps the fact that there is a thousand dollars reward in the case isn't making you anxious for some cooperation, suggested Fenton Hardy dryly. "'It ain't got nothing to do with it,' replied Chief Collig virtuously. "'We're just anxious to see this affair cleared up, that's all. "'Now, Mr. Hardy, we hear you were with the officers "'that chased this here notorious criminal, Red Jackley.' Mr. Hardy gave a perceptible start. He had no idea that news of the capture of Jackley had reached Bayport, much less that news of his own participation in the chase had reached the city. What of it? Did Jackley have anything to do with this here tower case? How should I know? Wasn't that what you were working on? That's my affair. Detective Smuff and Chief Collig looked at one another. You ain't cooperating, complained Chief Collig. You're going to put us all to a whole lot of worry and expense. Just because you won't give us a little cooperation. What do you mean? Detective Smuff and me was thinking of going over to the hospital where this man Jackley is, and giving him the third degree about that tower case. Fenton Hardy's lips narrowed into a straight line. You can't do that. The doctor won't let you see him. We're going to try anyway. There's a train at seven o'clock, and we aim to have a talk with this feller, Jackley, tonight. Mr. Hardy shrugged his shoulders. Go ahead. It means nothing to me, but if you take my advice, you'll stay away. You'll just spoil everything. Jackley will talk when the time comes. Oh, ho, said Detective Smuff triumphantly. Then there is something to it, hey? I knew there was, said Chief Colleg. Come on, Smuff. "'We'll make this man Jackley talk yet. "'We're officers of the law, we are, "'and I'd like to see any doctor keep us from doing our duty.' "'He mopped his brow again, put on his hat, "'nodded to Fenton Hardy, and clumped out of the room. "'Detective Smuff, putting his notebook into his pocket, followed. "'The door closed behind them. "'Mr. Hardy sat back with a gesture of despair. They'll spoil everything, he said. They're just so clumsy that Red Jackley will close up like a clam if they try to make him talk. Perhaps, remarked Frank significantly, they'll miss their train. At that moment, the telephone rang. Mr. Hardy answered it. Hello? Yes, this is Fenton Hardy. Oh, yes, yes, doctor. Doctor, is he? Well, is that so? He won't live until morning, and I can see him? Fine, thank you. Goodbye. He put back the receiver. There, he said wearily, "Just my luck." Red Jackley is dying, and the doctor says I can see him tonight. But Colligan and Smuff will have first right to talk to him, for they are officials, and I'm only a private detective. If Jackley confesses, they'll have the credit for it. They'll just have to miss their train," said Frank. "Come on, Joe." Let's see what we can do. Chapter 15 The Chief Gets a Bomb What's up now? asked Joe when the Hardy Boys had left the house. Chief Colligan and Detective Smuff must miss that train. But how? I don't know how just yet, but they've got to miss it. If they reach the hospital tonight, they'll interview Jackley first. One of two things will happen— They'll either get a confession and take all the credit for clearing up the case, or they'll go about it so clumsily that Jack Lee will say nothing and spoil everything for Dad. The Hardy Boys walked along the street in silence. They realized that the situation was urgent, but although they racked their brains trying to think of some way in which to prevent Chief Collig and Detective Smuff from catching the train, it seemed hopeless." "'Let's round up the gang,' suggested Joe. "'Perhaps they can think of something.'" The gang consisted of the boys who had been with Frank and Joe the day that they held the picnic in the woods. There was, of course, Chet Morton. Besides him were Alan Hooper, otherwise known as Biff, because of his passion for boxing, Jerry Gilroy, Phil Cohen, and Tony Preeto, all students at the Bayport High School. They were usually to be found on the school campus after hours, playing ball. And there the Hardy Boys soon located them. The game was just breaking up. Ha! Pikers! Grinned Chet Morton when he saw the Hardy Boys approaching. You wouldn't play ball when we asked you to, and now you come around when the game's all over. We had something more important on our minds, replied Frank. We need your help. What's the matter? Asked Tony Preto. Tony was the son of a prosperous Italian building contractor, but he had not yet been in America long enough to talk the language without an accent, and his attempts were frequently the cause of much amusement to his companions. He was quick and good-natured, however, and laughed just as much at his own errors as anyone else did. "'Chief and Detective Smuffer, butting into one of Dad's cases,' said Frank." "'We can't tell you much more about it than that, "'but the whole thing is that they mustn't catch the seven o'clock train.' "'What do you want us to do?' asked Biff Hooper. "'Blow up the bridge?' "'We might lock and Smuff in one of their own cells,' suggested Phil Cohen. "'And get locked in ourselves,' added Jerry Gilroy. "'Be sensible. Are you serious about this, Frank?' "'Absolutely. If those two catch that train, Dad's case will be ruined.' and I don't mind telling you it has something to do with Perry Robinson. Chet Morton whistled. (whistles) Aha, I see now. The tower affair. In that case, we'll see to it that the seven o'clock train leaves here without our worthy chief and his equally worthy, although dumb, detective. He did not like Smuff, for the sleuth had once or twice tried to arrest the boys, "'for bathing in a forbidden section of the bay. "'There's only one question left,' said Phil solemnly. "'And what is that? "'How to keep them from getting on the train?' "'Get your brains to work, fellows, if you have any,' "'ordered Jerry Gilroy. "'Let's figure out a plan.' "'A dozen plans were suggested, "'each wilder than the one before. "'Biff Hooper was in favor of kidnapping the chief "'and his detective, binding them hand and foot.' And setting them adrift in the bay in an open boat. Phil Cohen suggested putting the chief's watch an hour ahead. That plan, as Frank observed, would have been a good one, but for the little difficulty of laying hands on the watch. Chet Morton thought it would be a good idea to start a fight in front of the police station, just as Colleg and Smuff were about to leave for the train. The possibility that they might all land in jail as a result made this suggestion unpopular. "'If we were in Italy, we could get the Black Hand to help,' said Tony Prito. "'The Black Hand?' declared Chet. "'That's a good idea.' "'We got no Black Hand Society in Bayport,' objected Tony. "'Let's get one up. "'Send the chief a Black Hand letter warning him not to take that train. "'And if he ever found out who wrote it, "'we'd all be up to our necks in trouble,' pointed out Joe. "'I'd like to put a bomb under his old police station.' Fine idea, applauded Tony. Where would we get the bomb? (gasps) Leave it to me, announced Chet Morton mysteriously. I'll get a bomb. I'll guarantee to keep the chief in town. Not a real bomb, asked Frank. Why not, said Chet. Listen to me. Chet proceeded to lay forth his plan in a stealthy whisper. It was received with chuckles and murmurs of admiration. His companions clapped him on the back and when he had finished, the boys hastened down the street toward the Hardy home. In the rear of the house were a garage and an old barn. In the barn was a gymnasium that the Hardy boys had fitted out for themselves, and here was the usual collection of old toys, footballs, broken baseball bats, and such paraphernalia to be found wherever boys stored their cherished possessions. Frank groped about the rubbish in one corner until at last he rose with an exclamation of triumph, holding aloft a shining object. It's here, he said. Let's get busy. There's no time to lose. An old box was quickly produced, and in it the shining object was placed. The box was then carefully wrapped up, and in a few minutes the boys left the barn, Tony carrying the package under one arm. Not far from the Bayport police station was a fruit stand, over which presided an Italian by the name of Rocco. He was a simple, genial soul, who believed almost everything he heard, and he was of a very excitable nature. Toward Rocco's fruit stand, the boys made their way. Rocco was sorting over his oranges when they approached. Tony, with the box under his arm, hung in the background, while Chet stepped boldly forward. How much are your oranges, Rocco? he asked. Rocco, with much explanatory waving of arms, recited the prices of the various grades of oranges. Too much. There's a fellow at another fruit stand on the next street. Sells them a nickel a dozen cheaper. He cannot do that, shrieked Rocco. My price is so low. Then, angered by this reflection on the prices of his wares, He burst into a lengthy explanation of the struggles confronting a poor Italian trying to get along in a new country. He grabbed Chet by the coat collar, dragged him to a corner of the fruit stall, bade him inspect the fruit, gabbled off prices and generally worked himself into a state of high indignation. In the meantime, Tony Prito made good use of his time to shove the mysterious package under the front of the stall. Then he joined the other boys who had screened his movements by gathering about Rocco. You'll have the black hand after you if you keep on charging such high prices. That's all I can say, declared Chet as the boys moved away. Oh, what do I care for the black hand? You do not frighten me, said Rocco bravely, but he gulped when he said it, and there was no doubt about it that the shot had gone home. It was now after six o'clock and the boys decided that in the interests of their plan, they would have to brook the parental wrath by being late for supper. Frank had assumed that Chief Colligan and Detective Smuff would be leaving to catch the train at about ten minutes to seven. So shortly after 6.30, Phil Cohen, who had remained in the background during the interview with Rocco, walked smartly up to the fruit stand again. The others were viewing the scene from around the corner of a nearby building, "'Banana,' said Phil briefly, tossing a nickel onto the counter. When he had received the fruit, he began to eat it, at the same time chatting with Rocco. "'What do you think?' snickered the Italian. "'Some boys come here a while back and say that the black hen thinks I charge too much for the fruit.' (laughs) "'Well, you do charge too much, Rocco. Everybody says so. "'I sell the fruit at a good price.' Phil turned aside, and at the same time, accidentally knocked an apple to the ground. He bent to pick it up. Rocco eyed him narrowly in case he tried to slip it into his pocket. But Phil did not get up at once. Instead, he said, Ha! What's this? What did you find? What is this, Rocco?" Phil rose from the front of the stand with the package in his hands. I found this under the counter. Rocco stared, his mouth open in dismay. For, sounding clearly from the inside of the package, came a steady tick-tock, tick-tock, Haboom! he shrieked. Put him down! Thereupon he scrambled wildly over the array of fruit at the back of the stand, knocked over a tray of oranges, and went sprawling over the opposite counter, roaring, Police! Police! at the top of his lungs. Phil, with a fine imitation of fright, put the package on top of the counter and fled. Rocco, in his white apron, was dancing about in the middle of the street, yelling, ''Bombs! Police! The Black Hand!'' Then, suddenly fearing that the supposed bomb might explode at any moment, he whirled rapidly about and raced down the street away from the stand in the general direction of the police station. He reached the doorway just as Chief Collig and Detective Smuff were leaving for the train. Panting with fear and excitement, Roko implored them to save him from the black handers, who had put a bomb under his fruit stand. De bomb! She go tick-tock, tick-tock!' he wailed. "'She blowed the stand into little pieces!' "'A bomb?' exclaimed Chief Collig. "'Surely not in Bayport!' "'I always thought there was black handers around here,' said Smuff. "'She blow the fruit stand! Come quick!' Chief Collig and Detective Smuff followed Rocco to the corner. Then they peeped around until they could see the deserted fruit stand with the package on the counter. You say it goes tick-tock? Just like the clock. Must be a bomb, all right, said Smuff. They run by clockwork. Might go off any minute, observed the chief. I hate to go near it, Smuff. "'You go and pour a pail of water over it.' "'Me?' "'Yes, you. You're not afraid, are you?' "'No, I'm not afraid,' muttered Smuff, mocking his brow. "'But I gotta think of my wife and family.' "'Coward,' said the chief. "'I'd do it myself, only it wouldn't be right, "'seeing as I'm your superior officer. "'Bad for discipline.' The worthy officers stared at the package on the fruit-stand counter, while Rocco danced with impatience. Neither Colleg nor Smuff dared approach closer, but they realized something must be done. "'Where's Riley?' asked the chief at last. "'Out on his beat around the corner. Go get him.' Smuff departed hastily, glad of the chance to get away from the vicinity of the bomb." He was some time in locating Con Riley, and when at last that minion of the law was escorted back to the chief, seven o'clock had come and gone, and so had the train. This is your host, Catherine Lopez-Luker. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Stories Come to Life. Be sure to join us next time when we continue to listen to the adventures of the Hardy Boys in The Tower Treasure. I'd love to hear from you, so please send an email to me at kluker at marshallpl.org. I'll talk to you again soon.